Let us pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we come now to seriously consider your word. And so I ask that you take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and make them wholly yours. That together we might actively listen and critically think so that we can grow and give away the same radical love of Jesus that he first gave to us. All these things I ask and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome back to the seventh sermon in our Discipleship Pathway series, The Good and Beautiful Community. Now, if you'd like to see a full list of the sermons preached so far, you can look in the bulletin sermon insert and you can find that list there. Author James Bryan Smith says, Christians are not always different from everyone else, but they ought to be, and often are. According to the Apostle Peter, Christians are a chosen people who are now aliens and strangers in the world. See, we've been set apart by our relationship with Jesus and each other so that as individuals and as a community, we can embody the love of Jesus Christ to the world in which we are living. Now that means replacing false narratives that we believe that can lead us to cause harm to ourselves and others. And replacing those with the true narratives of the kingdom of God. Today, as in previous weeks, I begin with an illustration. And today, I want to begin with an illustration from the year of our Lord, 2017. That's a lovely shade of Tennessee orange in a cast, if you ask me. In February of 2017, I had my ankle reconstructed, my left ankle. It only took the Veterans Affairs Department 21 years to fix it. Way to go, government. But I digress. The first two weeks were really tough afterwards because there was an incision and I had to wear a splint and I couldn't be cast yet. When, when I got that cast on, my life changed because I got some, some freedom back. But the first two weeks were really, really, really rough. Any of you have had surgery, you know those first couple of weeks can be really rough. And I needed help. I needed help, and I'm not a person that needs help, right? I'm a person that gives help. I don't want your help. I don't need your help. Don't help me kind of person. You know those kind of people? Yeah. But I needed help. I needed help with everything. I even needed help with bathing. And there's nothing quite so as uh, humility growing in as having your wife bathe you because you can't, right? There's this false narrative in the world that many of us know. It's God helps those who help themselves, right? God helps those who help themselves. By the way, you know this is nowhere in the Bible, right? That's not in the Bible. In fact, that's that's a paraphrase of something that Ben Franklin said in 1757, but the sentiment goes back even to ancient times. God helps those who help themselves. But the help I received after my surgery reminds me of a very true narrative of the kingdom of God, for which I give thanks right now, and I give God the glory for it. Here's the true narrative. God helps those who cannot help themselves. I worked hard my entire life, I'm achievement-oriented as a person, so there's a lot I've accomplished, and, and, and I love to be of service to other people. 
But following my surgery, I just could not help myself. So I needed the help of others. And praise God, my family, the church I was serving at the time, the medical professionals, and so many others were there to help me when I could not help myself. Today's scripture lesson is known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And it addresses the difference in part between these two, these two narratives, the false narrative and the true narrative. And by the way, just a quick reminder that a parable is an earthly story that teaches a spiritual lesson with an eternal implication. So Jesus began with this parable. He said, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. In other words, the rich man had it all. He is described by his clothing and how he ate. Royalty was the color purple, it symbolized kingship. His fine linen was probably from Egyptian. Uh, and the luxury of which it speaks of, it literally means he was enjoying himself sumptuously each day. Had it all, enjoying it all. In fact, his house was so big that it even had a gate. One could say it was a mini castle. And Jesus goes on to say, at his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Why, even the dogs came and licked his sores. In his earthly life, the poor man had nothing. Now, he wasn't a leper. Because he was begging in public and he was not on the outskirts of town. So we don't know exactly what he was afflicted with. But his sores, translated, means ulcers. So he had ulcers all over his body. And he was longing to eat. And the dogs were there, y'all. And, and, and dogs in the ancient Near East are not romanticized. Like, these were not man's best friend, right? They were seen as unclean animals and, and not good at all. The dogs, even the dogs were tormenting Lazarus by licking his sores. Why, we even know from the story that Lazarus didn't receive a proper burial, but the rich man did. Interestingly, if you didn't know this, this is the only parable where a character is named. And Lazarus' name means he whom God has helped. Lazarus, he was never helped while suffering in his body. In death, however, God did not forsake Lazarus. His soul found help, it found healing, it found restoration, as do the souls of all the faithful when our bodies die. The rich man could have easily helped Lazarus during his earthly life. So what kept the rich man from helping Lazarus? Well, in three words, judgment, scarcity, and entitlement. Judgment, scarcity, and entitlement. In the words of James Bryan Smith, the rich man had built a mighty fortress against generosity. The rich man's castle was a miserly castle. One might liken that rich man to Ebenezer Scrooge. Now people who live in miserly castles, they separate themselves from others with judgment. The rich man fed his own soul a false narrative that God helps those who help themselves. Whenever the rich man left his home, he had to pass by Lazarus at the gate. He knew Lazarus' name because we see that in the afterlife portion of the parable. But the rich man, he never even once stopped to talk to Lazarus, even though he knew his name, and he never helped the man. No, the rich man was too busy feasting upon judgment. But that wasn't the only false narrative the rich man believed. You see, the rich man, he also believed in scarcity. That if I give it away... I will have less. 
See, people who live in miserly castles separate themselves through scarcity. I imagine the rich man thought to himself, well, if I help Lazarus, he surely will waste whatever I give to him. Why should I choose to give away some of the stuff, my stuff, to someone who can't even take care of themselves? Lazarus can't even keep the dogs away from his sores. All my stuff is going to be safer with me. The rich man, he constructed a a miserly castle of judgment and scarcity because he believed these lies. We also see that the rich man believed in entitlement. What I have is mine to use exclusively for my pleasure. People who live in miserly castles build giant walls of entitlement. The rich man clearly had no problems enjoying everything he owned, and and why not? It was his, right? Judgmentalism, scarcity, and entitlement. These are the false narratives that the world supplies every person with which to build a miserly castle, if we so choose. But the truth of the kingdom of God is that nothing we have, not even ourselves, is ours. Everything good we see, sun, grass, clouds, people, and everything good we can't see, like the air we breathe, electricity, gravity. By the way, do you you believe in the air we breathe? Raise your hand. Do do you believe in electricity? Do, Do you believe in gravity? You can't see these things, but you believe they exist? Why not the soul of them? God's given us everything good we can't see. It all comes from God. See, the truth is, God has given each person a life with which to build a small kingdom. A kingdom that is on loan from God for only a short time. God has also graced us with choice. Will we serve and glorify Him or ourselves? In just a few moments, we're going to read the names of the saints. Our saints chose to build their kingdoms with Jesus while they walked this earth. They were, in the words of earlier sermons in this series, peculiar and wholly broken. They were not perfect, but they've gone on to perfection because they walked with Jesus. We share God's good and beautiful community with our saints while they walk this earth, and we still do, because God's kingdom is eternal. There's no end to God's good and beautiful community. See, whatever you invest in the kingdom of God in this life, that exists forever and ever and ever. Inheriting the kingdom of God comes by realizing that the miniature kingdom God gives each of us is simply not our own. In other words, our lives are not given to us to build miserly castles. Jesus reminds us, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for a person if they gain a whole world and yet lose or forfeit their own soul? I spend a great deal of time walking with others through the valley of the shadow of death. Death is always present for me. 
And because I'm constantly faced with the sobering reality of death, I am often reminded that there will come a time when I no longer walk this earth. And so I reflect with this question, which is going to sound a little dark, but I think it's worth considering. And the question is this. Who will remember me a hundred years from now? Will there be anyone to tell my story? Probably not. And I'm okay with that. Because my story is part of the greatest story ever told. The story of Jesus. That's why I have confidence in a great future. You see, the story of Jesus Christ has never been lost. And it's never gone out of style. Jesus' story was and is and always will be. And I know that if my life story is connected to Jesus' story, then my story will join the reality of other people's stories with Jesus. True stories that have made the kingdom of God a present reality in every generation. Will I be forgotten when I die? Yes. At least to the world. Will I be forgotten by Jesus? No. Has the world forgotten Jesus' story? No. And it never will. My life is not my own. It's on loan to me from God who has graced me to help build his kingdom while I live. Our saints, our beloved saints, those we celebrate today and those that we name in our hearts that went before them, they all realized That the kingdom of God was their kingdom. They did not build miserly castles. Our saints built outposts of God's glory with their lives. And we too are called to build outposts of God's glory. We, We can avoid the temptation to erect our own miserly castle. With Jesus at the center of our life story, we can build an outpost of glory by living doxologically. Each Sunday we sing a doxology, don't we? But do you know what the word doxology means? It's the combination of two Greek words, doxa, which means the appearance or glory of God, and logia, from the Greek root logos, meaning word or speaking or expressing. So living doxologically means expressing the glory of God with our lives. Now allow me also to clarify the meaning of glory because sometimes we confuse God's power with God's glory. See, you need to know that God's power is not the same as God's glory. Next slide. The power of God. It's the kind of power that parts the Red Sea. It calms the storm. It gives sight to the blind. It resurrects from the dead. That's the power of God. But the glory of God, the glory of God is witnessed every day in the face of people that bear His image. In the air that we breathe, the light of the sun and the water we drink. But most importantly, our witness to God's glory is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's not because I say so, but because of what Jesus says. The first 11 chapters of John's Gospel is what's called the Book of Signs. And it points to the power of God's incarnation in Jesus Christ. 
But then the second book begins in chapter 12. It's what scholars refer to as the book of glory. Did you know that? And the book of glory, y'all, it begins with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Then he moves to the Last Supper. And he follows that with intimate teachings like, I'm going to prepare a place for you and peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. And then Jesus moves to a heartfelt prayer in Gethsemane's garden and ultimately to Calvary's cross. See, we see the glory of God in the passion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's at the beginning of chapter 12. And he went on to say this, and this is something I share at every graveside service. He said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The person who loves their life will lose it, while the person who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's the point? The point is, if we follow Jesus, we no longer belong to the world. See, the inner disposition of Jesus was the same as his father. That's love. So loved Jesus the world. So grateful was Jesus for all that he had made that even though the world became broken, Jesus helped. Jesus helped because we were helpless. We were helpless to save ourselves. Jesus' inner disposition naturally led to an outer expression of giving. And this is what Jesus did throughout his living. And even while he was actively dying, even with his last breath, Jesus was giving. Because when he had received the last drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed up his head and gave his spirit. Even into death, he was giving. You see, the glory of God is the expression of his disposition in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our source and our model for living doxologically. Jesus is the doxa. He is the visible glory of the Godhead. Jesus is logia, the expression of God's glory to all creation. Living doxologically, friends, is to have our inner disposition transformed by gratitude for Jesus. So that our outer expression can be witnessed in thanksgiving. Listen. Those who live doxologically never die. We forever belong to God's good and beautiful community. The disposition of gratitude expressed in thanksgiving is living doxologically. And living doxologically showcases the glory of God. Our lives and our stuff. They're not our own. They're given to us by God to be used as outpost of his glory. So, if you find yourself building a miserly castle, tear it down by living doxologically. First thing you can do, you can lay siege to judgmentalism by expressing thanksgiving. Expressing our gratitude to God and thanksgiving, that helps us not to feed the monster of being judgmental. See, when we judge others, we feed our souls the lie that some of us are better than other people. And the resulting action is often inaction, not helping others when given the chance. Living doxologically helps us to see everything through the lens of truth. And the truth is, we ain't God. Therefore, we are as equally helpless as others. So first, lay siege to judgmentalism. Second, 
Cross the moat of scarcity by building a Thanksgiving bridge. God has provided everything we have. Not that we might hoard it unto ourselves, but to give to others that are in need. Now that doesn't mean a way to give away your life savings. Or very rarely does it ever mean that. See, it's not God's desire for you to be intentionally poor, nor does God's desire for you not to enjoy the fruit of your labor. In fact, there's nothing spiritual about poverty or wealth. They simply exist so that the other might express thanksgiving. So first, lay siege to a miserly castle. Second, build a bridge across scarcity moat. And third, break down the wall of entitlement with a thanksgiving statue. You know, few feelings are more dangerous to the disciple and to our world than feelings of entitlement. You are entitled to your thoughts. You are entitled to your feelings. You are entitled to your opinion, but you're not always entitled to share your opinion with others. You're entitled to what you've labored for, but you've been blessed to help others when they are unable to help themselves. We have a good and beautiful community so that we can help one another get over ourselves. As a good and beautiful community, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus reminds us that we only have one chance. Will our life kingdoms be miserly castles or glorious outposts? The choice and the chance are now because we cannot choose beyond the grave. Once we die, the opportunity to live doxologically is going to come to an end. Does that mean works will save us? No. But if our faith does not find itself expressing itself in action, was it really faith to begin with? Living doxologically is the only way to live now and forever. And our saints, our saints now stand triumphantly with Jesus on the other side of death. Our saints, they are cheering us on right now to live as glorious outposts of God's good and beautiful community. They are singing praises in heaven right now, singing that heaven is real. And they've joined that mighty chorus of angels and archangels and all creation in singing the doxology of God. So let's live doxologically now so we can join our saints in singing the doxology forever. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Live doxologically. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.